0: Hi, Raphael Bender here, founder of Breathe Education, and you're listening to the Pilates Elephants podcast with me and my co-host Chloe Bunter. There are many things that are awesome about the Pilates industry, however, many of the practices we take for granted are out of date or just plain pseudoscientific. These are the elephants in the room in Pilates, and we're here to talk about them openly and honestly, and with a fair few F-bombs thrown in. This show is about debunking the myths and giving you science-based tools to become a better, happier, and more fearless teacher. If you've been enjoying the show and you want to give back, give us a five-star rating and write us a glowing review on Apple Podcast app. That'll help other instructors find the show and let us know we're making a difference. In this episode, I talk with Greg Lehman who really is has been a seminal influence on Maya and Chloe's thinking around all matters related to biomechanics, pain science, and uh, really communication around those topics as well. So, uh, this episode really is going to sort of pull back the curtain on. Um, the genesis of a lot of the ideas that Chloe and I talk about on the podcast, and you're going to hear them from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Um, so I know you're going to get a lot out of a kick uh, out of uh, my chat with Greg Lehman. Hey, Chloe.
1: Hey, Raph. How you going?
0: Well, I was kind of cranky, Oh. but then I had an extra coffee and did a fucking awesome workout, and now I'm awesome.
1: Wow. Now I want to know why you were cranky. <laughs> <laughs> is it not for air?
0: <laughs> uh, no, why was I cranky? Well, uh, I've got a lot going on at the moment, you know, like um, just in, in business and lots of areas of, of life that uh, my brain is just going like I'm solving problems. Like I'm not kind of stressed or anxious. So I'm just like my brain is working on yeah. stuff the whole time. And um, I do all the right things, sleep hygiene. <laughs> yeah, you?
1: You? Know. you? Do you what, what do you get a consistent how many hours sleep? What are you in, I'm in night? bed
0: for um, uh, between eight and nine hours every night. Wow. Um, uh, you know, so I'm in bed with the lights off and my eyes closed and some classical music on Spotify yeah. at 7.30 p.m. Whoa. And I have the ad-free Spotify, so it's just relaxing classical. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm asleep within five minutes. Right. Wow. So I know all the things, turn down the lights, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right. yeah. I know all that stuff and I do it all, right? Yeah. But sometimes, like last night, I was sleep in, in bed with my eyes closed at 7.30, asleep by 7.35, woke up at 9.30 going, oh, I know what we've got to do on the website. Or, oh, you know, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, <sighs> um, and my brain just wouldn't. You know, turn off. So yeah. and, you know, and so I know. I follow the research when I when that happens. You don't lie in bed. You you know, get up. You get up. You, yep. you do something relaxing. Yep. I got up, went and lay down in the spare room. Read my book, just a trashy, you know, airport fiction novel. Yep. I got from my brother-in-law. You know, for a bit. And then went back to sleep. But then I woke up a bunch more times, and I go, oh, and I know how to. Wow. So, okay. Know, so, so my brain was just figuring stuff out. Yeah. And, and so it was all good. I wasn't. I'm not. Wasn't feeling like anxious or anything about, but it's just like, yeah, just couldn't wind right down. Mm. And so when I woke up this morning, um, I was a little bit underslept, a little Mm. bit gravelly behind the eyes and a little, you know, all of those familiar sensations. Hey, my,
1: literally how I wake up every single day. So,
0: so, um, (laughs) yes, I was like, huh, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to have an extra coffee today because I know that caffeine and vigorous intensity physical exercise can temporarily reverse the effects of sleep deprivation on alertness and cognitive function. Uh Yeah. So fuck it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And elevate your mood, right? Get some endorphins happening. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, actually exercise uh, is effective for alleviating depressive symptoms in the general population, not in major depressive disorder, but in, in the general population and more intense exercise seems to be more effective than less intense exercise. Yeah. Very
1: cool. Very cool. So that's
0: how come I'm fucking awesome. And then, like, I get to sit here opposite you, and, (laughs) you know, and it's so great being here in person. And and we've got the gang here helping us out, like, doing all the magic, smoke and mirrors to popping the
1: Vaseline on the lens of the camera for me. (laughs) Better have done that, lads.
0: (laughs) Um, And yeah, so this is just like, this is a fun, yeah, this is a fun, fun time.
1: Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. How are you? Well, it's funny because i um I'm consistently pretty awesome at the moment. I'm always a little bit sleep deprived. Uh, I've loved our sleep um, dive deep dive uh, with the diploma. I've been really loving that um as well to put in some more strategies with my sleep. But you know, it's not helping that I've got a kitten that mm. it seems like, So this, I heard this from parents the whole time, this change. We've just, in Australia, we've just, uh, Daylight Savings has just ended. So the clocks have gone back an hour. Is that right? So I can never remember it was back or forth. But whichever way, put it this way, my kitten's waking up, just like apparently children do, the hour earlier. (laughs) And I'm like, why aren't we awake right now? And then he wants to play and he's realised that he can really get my attention. He starts off softly, but then he just brings out teeth. Because he knows that teeth are going to, like, starting to bite me. I'm going to wake up. So, anyway. But then I look at him and I'm like, you're the freaking cutest thing in the world. Mm. How could I ever be mad? And I've got the most beautiful neighbours, Rav. Today I went outside and all my, the nature strip out the front of my um, house had been whippersnippered and mowed for me. And I I looked up and he's like, I'm like, hello. He's like, hey, I'm John. I'm like, hey, I'm Chloe Goes. Yeah, I just do this. He's my neighbour from a few doors down and he just does it for all of us, like in a wow. little block there, because he's our neighbour.
0: And he's got a whippersnipper.
1: And he's got a snipper. And awesome. I was just like, you're an Shout angel. Shout out to John. John, what a bled... I was literally like, John, you're a freaking legend. Because I had no way of doing this. I was thinking the grass was going to end up with snakes and whatnot. It is Australia. Mm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's awesome. Um, so who are, we, who are we introducing today?
0: Well, uh, we're introducing one of your favourite people and mine, um, Greg Lehman.
1: Greg Lehman. When we say one of my, like, it's no, ex- like, I bloody love Greg. I, like, literally love the guy. He's freaking amazing. Both you and I have spent time with him IRL in real IRL. life. IRL. In real life. I've gone out for, for beers with, with him in the biomechanics Lads and, uh, and uh, a few of the others when he came to Melbourne for his Reconciling Biomechanics with Pain Science course. And he is a really great guy. Yeah, he's awesome. He's awesome. So where is Greg based?
0: Uh, Greg's in Canada somewhere. Can't recall exactly where. That's right. Um, uh, he is a physiotherapist. Actually, I think he was a chiropractor first. Yes. And so he's a chiropractor, and then he that wasn't enough study for him. So he went back to university and did a degree in biomechanics uh, under Stuart McGill. Um, and then I think he did a master's of physiotherapy, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so he's also specialized in strength and conditioning. <laughs> so, you know, this is a man who, and, and he's published a couple of research papers as well in the biomechanics sphere. Um, and so this is a man who's like, you know, deeply educated and 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 intimately uh, familiar with the literature in you know biomechanics and pain science in particular, and that's where I met him as well. Um, in San Diego at the San Diego Pain Summit, uh, he delivered his course there, reconciling biomechanics with pain science, and. Fuck me, he is hilarious. He's like, so, he is so funny. funny,
1: like he's so funny. Like he could actually be a stand-up comedian. Yeah, yeah, I would pay yeah. money to go. Hey, Greg, if you're listening, I would pay money to come yeah. and watch you do stand-up comedy. He's he's got yeah. a very dry sense of humour, uh, and I would
0: say actually that particular time he had quite a wet sense of humour. Okay, yeah,
1: okay, <laughs> and he's got great comedic timing. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, he's um he's he's brilliant, yeah. and you would have if, if you go onto a lot of the um breathe uh edu cohorts Instagrams, you will see that we've got this little thing in our bio that says movement optimist.
0: Mm. I've now, got it in my bio too. You
1: got it in yours as well. Yeah, I've got Nick's it in my, Instagram. Yeah, my yeah. Instagram. yeah, yeah. So. Where did we get that from? Well, Greg Lehman is the original – he coined the term originally. Movement Optimism TM. Move, movement Optimism. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, He is the OG Movement Optimist. Mm.
0: And, I, I, you know, obviously we love that term because we all put it on our Instagram yeah. profile. <laughs> um, and I, I think uh, – I'm going to leave it to Greg to explain, you know, what that's all about. Yeah. But, um, like, this guy is – He's got a brain the size of the fucking universe and he's incredibly articulate and talks in a a way that any 10-year-old could understand, you know, what he's talking about um, without dumbing it down. He's just, he's a genius.
1: And he's extremely generous too with his knowledge and his information. If you do his course, you actually get a link to his Dropbox. To his Google Drive, yeah. To his Google Drive. Forever.
0: Yeah, I've still got all of his slides so and all as his he, notes.
1: As yeah. he updates it, yeah. you actually get – and I'm pretty sure he talked about it's actually um, his daughters need to – if something happens to him, he's got someone to take it over and continue it. <laughs> so he's absolutely brilliant. He's his his also, daughters are
0: only like 10 yeah, years old. Yeah, he's got old. it all
1: set up. He's got. We've got to keep the knowledge happening. His daughter's Violet and I can't remember the yeah. other – yeah, and they're wonderful too. They're often in his videos. Mm. They're all you know, he's built them like a gymnastic basically gymnastic playground at, at mm. the in their backyard.
0: I think that's a lot for him though as well. Yeah, well
1: he's <laughs> he's into <laughs> somersaulting and, and backflips yeah. and he's now taken up skating as yeah, well. Yeah. He's um he's extremely uh yeah. He's he's fascinating, he's engaging and uh extremely knowledgeable. You're going to get very, a lot very, out of this. Yeah,
0: very well read and um, just a, a, a brilliant communicator. So I think um, in this conversation uh, we talk about um, this uh, idea that Greg has that I got from him that basically the biomechanics research invalidates the idea of dysfunction. Um, so uh, he talks about that and the idea of dysfunction as a cause of like pain and disability and, um, We talk about uh, why scapular dyskinesis, or aka your shoulder blades poking out in funky angles, um, is not a thing, Um, and uh, your knees going in during a squat is totally fine, and uh, several other interesting topics. So, um, uh, and and towards the end, Greg uh, shares sort of his his uh, thoughts and his approach of movement optimism, and uh, and also his. basic framework for how he works with clients, you know, who have uh, pain or injury. So um, if you're interested in this podcast, you're going to love this conversation with, with Greg Lehman.
1: Yes. And the last thing I would also add in is that if you want more of Greg, uh, A, do his course because mm. it's online now. Thanks, COVID. I just think that's incredible. You don't actually have to wait for him to mm. to, to come to mm. Australia, although I do hear he's got uh, a trip uh, planned for twenty twenty two at the beginning of twenty twenty two, he's let me know, which is exciting. Um and also shout out to his and Adam Meakin's podcast. Um The NAF
0: which, Podcast. The
1: NAF N N A F. Um which do you know what do you know what it, why it was called NAF? No. Not another fucking podcast. That's what Meeks called it when he created it. He didn't think it was going to kick off. And he's like, oh, not another fucking podcast. And it it stuck. So that's the NAF Physio podcast. Um, And if you're listening to our podcast, Great shit name,
0: great podcast. Pardon? Shit name, great podcast. (laughs) Do you think it's a shit name? I do. (laughs) It sounds to me like I I didn't know that story. But NAF to me as an Australian who- doesn't speak bit British, naff, it? it sounds like something, like naff as in like silly, daggy, yes. outdated,
1: yeah, you know, right. wanky,
0: you know, something like that. And it's like, yeah, to me, that's like the, the stupid physio, you know, the, the daggy physio podcast, it just kind of doesn't make it sound appetizing.
1: Right. Whereas you know. I, I love the backstory. So I actually think it's fantastic so makes not another fucking podcast yeah well i think
0: if he called it not another fucking podcast i think that would be a oh cool, okay be a so cool just name. take take
1: yeah. the, take the acronym out yeah. and just call it what it is i love it but yeah we love those guys and if you love our podcast you'll love theirs too
0: yeah so um get a load of this in your ears greg lehman is a clinical educator a physiotherapist and a chiropractor, and he had the distinction of studying under Professor Stuart McGill uh, in postgraduate studies in biomechanics at the University of Waterloo. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed papers on biomechanics and related topics, and he is the creator of the course Reconciling Biomechanics with Pain Science, which I had the pleasure of attending at this year's San Diego Pain Summit. Now, not only is Greg an extremely well-read, intelligent guy, he's also a hoot. And uh, I was pretty much laughing non-stop throughout the whole course, as well as learning some really interesting, useful, and cool stuff. Greg's approach uh, is exemplified by the idea that we should first calm shit down, then build shit back up. And in this interview, we talk through what that means in practice when the biomechanics research essentially invalidates the approach of using biomechanics to treat pain and disability, and when perhaps biomechanics might have a role to play in working with clients in this realm. And essentially, what's most important is what we can do instead of working within a biomechanical frame, or maybe working in a broader frame, which includes Biomechanics. So, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Greg Lehman. Greg, nice to talk with you.
2: Oh, great! Thanks for having me.
0: Um, tell me your thoughts on this model of dysfunction, which, which it seems to me, is the most common framework that practitioners use at present to try to understand uh, clients' pain or disability.
2: Yeah, it's it's sort of that model of, you know, we're always looking for things to fix right and and I've I, the way I start my course, which which is a lot of fun, and I guess it's what I've always done too i I kind of ask the question of people i mean do do we actually fix things or do we facilitate something else and to me like the it's the facilitating of something else, meaning like it's either a tolerance or an adaptation to something and i, I you can you can of course go through the literature and, and see this, but you can almost see it in in every day like um Some examples of, you know, we're all like I wrote a paper back in two thousand and four. It was like all of the biomechanical dysfunctions, you know, that you find in the spine. And what people mean by dysfunction is some way that we can measure how someone moves, how their muscles work, their range of motion, the muscle timing, whatever whatever equipment you happen to have, and you will find a difference in people who have pain versus. Those that don't. So those are dysfunctions. Like the transverse abdominis is delayed 60 milliseconds. You know, um, if if you're pulling on something and you or if you're like a machine is pulling on you and you let that person go, their muscles will turn off later or turn on too soon. There, there's all these things that happen when you have pain, and so people call those dysfunctions. And what I always say is we're chasing these dysfunctions and we assume that they're actually relevant to someone in pain. But when you look at the literature or if you just sort of look at your own patients, you can often see I don't have to fix those things. I did something else or that person did something with me and they got out of pain. They got out of disability. They're doing fantastic. And yet those things that we thought were a problem are still there. So we always what I always want to know is like what's if there is a dysfunction, is it really relevant, you know, and does it have to change? Like that does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So the there are the, there are these differences that we see, and transverse abdominis timing is one. And there are actually some things we see in terms of postural differences, like there was that uh, meta-analysis I can't recall who it was in twenty seventeen that found that a reduced lumbar curve was uh, correlated with significantly with, with low back pain. And so what you're saying is that yes, there are there are heaps of these things, but maybe they're not co- not directly causal, and. Yeah. In any event, we don't seem to need to change them in order to help people get on with their lives and do the things they want to do. So why worry about them?
2: Yeah, it, exactly. Like, that's like the low-level research we do. It's like a master's project. You, you take 20 people with pain, 20 people without, and you just figure out some what you measure something about them. And we always find a difference. But no one goes on to say, all right, those things have to change you know, with this specific technique. And if you don't change them, the person won't get out of pain. That, re- like spine stability, that's a perfect example. No one's actually really measured it, but no one's actually shown that that's something that has to improve or increase to get someone out of pain, or range of motion, or strength, all, the, all these things we take for granted. Uh, and, and so these are, these are I don't know if you can call them dysfunctions, but they don't have to change. Or take someone with a hip labral tear. if That might be associated with pain, but I'm sure you've helped people who have hip labral tears. They've gotten out of pain. They've done all the things that they love to do. And if you go back and scan them, they're still going to have a hip labral tear, right? It's, 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 we can do that with so many different things,
0: right? And there's pretty there's some pretty uh, compelling, in my mind, research on similar in shoulders where we have uh, rotator cuff tears that are surgically repaired, and then a year later they're off. They're they're much better, but the funny thing is, a significant portion of them have retorn. But they're yeah, like
2: fifty percent. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> but yeah, it well, like, still
2: you happens can have? Mm-hmm. You have a wonky moving scapula. You know, fifteen years ago, I might freak out about that, and now I'm like, wow, your scapula moves all over the place. How great is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not something you need to worry about.
0: All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, ask you to talk me through a couple of kind of more specific examples here because. Uh, that the scapular dyskinesis one or the the wonky scapula is one that there is a bit of controversy about at the moment in the research community as well. There was that paper, again, the author eludes me, but it was that the 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 sound bite was you know forty three percent increased chance of shoulder pain for athletes with scapular dyskinesis.
2: Yeah,, yes. the British North Force medicine, yeah
0: so I yes, so so, so what what are your thoughts on? on that i mean i know we talked through in the course that um in the reconciling biomechanics with pain science course there are you know in your view there are some problems with that whole uh idea can you talk us through your thoughts
2: yeah i mean with with that there's a lot of people questioning that and and certainly people questioning that who were once supportive of the scapular dyskinesis uh idea um uh that some of the arguments against it is you know, some of the prospective research, uh, it's not, it's not predictive. Like when they, when there's a, there's a, a handball study where they've tried to repeat it where, uh, and what they do is really good is they don't get into the minute details and sorry, I forget the author here too, but, um, I think it's out of Scandinavia. I know that for sure where, um, they'll say either it's moving poorly or it's moving. Okay. So they don't get into the vagaries and the details. So that that's good and they and they would say well if it's moving poorly you're at a slight increased risk of developing an injury that would be the 1.43 that's the odds mm-hmm. ratio thing but when they repeat the study it doesn't turn up and then some of those studies that go into that it's not a risk factor either a lot of the philip striff's research papers don't support it as a as a risk factor the other idea that 1.43 if in that study there's a bunch of studies that if the reliability of how they measured scapular dyskinesis mm-hmm. um, was questionable, and if you measure it another way, like the, the, um, the odds ratio now becomes like 1.17, so now it starts mm-hmm. getting closer to one, and now you start getting, like the confidence in- interval is off, so now you start getting into statistical flukes, so it's not really that that powerful. And then you have to say, well, can you change it? And often you can't, So it doesn't matter. And then the last thing you say in practice, well, if someone has dyskinesis, you're still going to do the same type of injury prevention protocols. You're still going to strengthen the shoulder. You're still going to strengthen the rotator cuff. You're going to work on the thorax. So it doesn't really change anything in practice by worrying about these things. Um, The best, just sorry, I'm talking a lot, but I think Chris Littlewood and maybe Oh, it might've been Ann Cools or Joe Gibson. I'm sorry, I forget, but definitely Chris Littlewood. They wrote a nice rebuttal um, to that that article and they really pointed out a lot of the flaws with that with that systematic review. So I would refer the listener to, to that study.
0: And I'll post that in the show notes. Now, I want to dig in a little bit more into your uh, thoughts there on, you know, so the things that you do for injury prevention are going to be the same, regardless of, you know, whether someone has dyskinesis or not yeah so but perhaps perhaps they perhaps they would and perhaps they wouldn't so uh you know if we're thinking about like in quotes correcting the dyskinesis, we might be doing a lot of motor control work there maybe you know down to yeah. the super detailed level of you know motor control of the the anterior shear of the humeral head during shoulder flexion mm. um or- um and so you know so we might be essentially we might be doing a very scapular slash you know stability motor control focused approach and we might be very much targeting individual muscles you know strengthening the rotator cuff isometrically doing all this kind of thing or we might do chris littlewood's um magical single shoulder exercise home program um yeah
2: that was for pain though yeah
0: right so Yeah. yeah so tell me tell me about uh what your approach would be to injury prevention in the shoulder? Uh,
2: it, it'd be the same as everywhere else because I, I kind of I always feel uh, it's tough because we know that prevention is difficult. We know that it's multifactorial. Um, and, and I'm not sure we can ever say, you know, what factor is the most important for that person in front of us. So I, I like to take a very general approach and – Look at all of the factors related to pain or injury and try to, it's the idea, and, and try to make the, the best person you can, essentially. Like, so you're not just looking at the shoulder, but of course you're looking at, at sleep, you're looking at, at stress, you're looking at all the psychosocial stressors someone someone has. But when it comes specific to, specifically to the shoulder or if I'm working on the front, um, we know strength training seems to help. So we can't say what we should specifically strength train. So we we should work on everything would be the idea you know both working strength power endurance of the rotator cuff of the scapulothoracic muscles both like working on flexibility in all planes of motion at every single joint so you're you're essentially just kind of making the best athlete that you can you know when it comes to that athletic population and then like in the hamstring literature it's a little bit better then you say okay what are the specific things that the researchers have taught us that we definitely need to add and that's all that's that's where it gets more difficult and that's where research I think can help us where what's the specific research besides just this great general I call it a comprehensive capacity approach you know besides this great general program what are the specific things that the researchers have have told us and that you just have to know your sport like and, and the demands on the person
0: right so what you've described there you know sounds eerily similar to a, a general strengthening and and exercise program for the shoulder yeah and, and for the whole person right yeah <laughs> um, and yet there are some uh, areas that we have identified that actually, you know, strengthening certain bits seems to be more effective than strengthening other bits. So I'm thinking like, for instance, uh, patellofemoral pain, you know, hip, hip yeah. and quad strengthening seems to be more effective than strengthening, you know, something else. And also, like you say, in hamstrings, like, the you know, the heavy eccentric work seems to be very important. For Achilles, tendinopathy, heavy loading seems to be really important, although we've shifted from the idea of eccentrics being the most important thing and now it just seems yeah. like load load is really important yeah yeah so so what are those things uh what are what are there any other areas where you're aware that you know more localized or specific strengthening or or retraining or, or whatever biomechanical interventions are important
2: well going back to the knee like with patellofemoral pain i mean what's so cool is we have all this pragmatic research that Strengthening endurance and power for the hip can help treat it. But what's interesting, it's it's strengthening the hip flexors. That has evidence that would be like Tim T- Tyler's work, Tyler's uh, work, or I think that's his first name. Anyway, Tyler's work. You know you can you can strengthen the strengthen the abductors. you can ex- ex- strengthen the extensors, the external rotators. So it's like the whole hip seems to be helpful rather than just one. Right. And when it, and when it comes to loading the knee, it doesn't matter if it's open chain or closed chain. You know, you you just have to load the knee in in some way, and then probably a the foot. <laughs> you know, so it's like, again, it's this side this is to me it's this call to be comprehensive, and it's okay not to be be specific, uh, and just like the loading, like you said with the ankle, we've moved beyond just eccentrics. It's just it could be heavy resistance training as well. It could be daily. It can be three times a week. Probably be two times a week, and so essentially you just have to say like, what can this joint do? Okay, let's. Let's build it up to tolerate all the things that that it has to do. Uh, I I I think it's cool and it's a it seems easy, but I'm in practice it's harder because now you have to have this comprehensive rehab program essentially.
0: Right, so we're sort of back to you know heavy squats for for everything. Um. <laughs> you
2: could, but you know what? No, it, it, that's what's great is like it doesn't have to be that because if you look at the literature, it just sort of says load that knee in some way. Yeah. So it doesn't have, like it could be, w- that's what's so fun is the, probably the most important thing is that the person does it, right? Yep. So if they don't like to do squats, then they could probably do something
0: else. Mm. Uh, one of the things we do on our course, we we train people to be Pilates instructors. We look at the, um, I think it's the current, the Dutch College of Physiotherapy um, ACE consensus on ACL rehab, it's a, and it's a... a stage-driven, like not a time-based thing. It's a performance-based protocol. Yeah. And when we read through it, you know, we read through every, every line of it and look at the you know what is joint effusion and what is zero degrees of extension and all that kind of. So really, kind of pick it apart. And when we get right to the end of it, it you know we kind of look back and go, oh, hold on, you know what have what have we done here? We've strengthened the quads and we've worked on range of motion of the knee and we've strengthened the glutes <laughs> and the hamstrings and the calves and we've. And the calves? On like, hold on, <laughs> that sounds. And then like
2: you did some balance, right? Hopping, so, power.
0: <laughs> right. So we're back to general, a general comprehensive <laughs> yeah. program. And it, it's, this is a Total. highly specific protocol, like in terms of it's very detailed and lays out, yeah, yeah. You know, but it's, you know, what it's telling you in a thousand words is like, yeah, strengthen, work on mobility, work on proprioception and balance, work on power.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> I know, I love it. And so to me, and sometimes I don't think with everyone you have to do that. I think you go... Uh, like you say, what does the person need to do? And then you match that and then just exceed it. Mm. Right? Cause I, I doubt it. You know what I mean? Like I doubt everyone who tears their hamstring needs to do, be doing explosive sprinting. Right. Right. Cause mm. some people tear it like my patients, they're usually distance runners. So they tear it. They tear water. They, sorry, they tear water skiing. Right. They've never sprinted in their life, right. Since grade five or something. So you don't have to get them right to that level, but if they want to go back to sprinting, then of course you do. So, but again, it's the same principles,
0: right? So tell me more about I this love. this idea of uh, building up the tissue tolerance or the the system tolerance, the load tolerance for a specific activity, because there's some interesting uh, research into a in the ACL area where there is this kind of tantalizing association between knee dynamic knee valgus in a you know like a drop jump or whatever. That seems to be correlated, but it's not predictive. And so, yeah, so what are your thoughts on the relationship, if any, between knee valgus and ACL injury?
2: Yeah, I think with the ACL, it's relevant. Uh, I I think where the research is conflicting is no one will argue that if you go fast into dynamic knee valgus, you know, and, and you don't stop it, eventually the ACL will get overloaded and it will tear. Where the debate was, was can you predict who will do that in their sport by right. doing a drop-jump landing? Right. So, like, the Americans would say, yeah, you can get an idea who's at risk. And then the Norwegian group, like, this is the, the ZBIS. Crosshag is the first author. They said, no, you can't predict. They would both agree that it's a risk factor. Mm-hmm. It's just you can't tell. So what you end up doing is everybody gets the prevention program <laughs> to try to prevent it. So they all agree, like, it, that's one of those ones where, Like, I like the debate of expose or protect. Mm -hmm. Like, you expose to the stressor to try to adapt to it. That's the expose model. The protect model is, ah, maybe that's there's so much load on the ACL when it gets injured, there's no way you can make it adapt to that. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's a good idea to to back off. You know, it's like, I rock climb, and when I jump down, I'm gonna land on my feet. I I wouldn't think it would ever be a good idea to land on my hands. Mm You know, even if I slowly built myself up to landing on my hands, I just don't think I could adapt to that. Does that make sense? Yeah. So so I think that's, that's the debate. With the ACL, I doubt you could, like, make your ACL so thick by loading into it <laughs> that you can, like, go into valgus willy-nilly with tons of load and a high cutting force or something.
0: Right. But the thing is that uh, in, you know, for instance, team ball sports, you know, those positions are essentially unavoidable. Sorry. yeah
2: but I don't think they totally go they go into valgus but there's probably a point where they're so strong and it's controlled hmm. that they don't go into it too much. Right. Does that seem yeah. fair?
0: Yeah. So I want like,
2: Can I mention one study, sorry, you got yeah, me excited. No, go for it. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Excellent. <laughs> Cuz I love this study. It's a Zebus study, that same research group. So they they did a the neuromuscular training program trying to prevent the valgus you know, they knew that it could help prevent some injuries. Then when they measured how people moved, there was no difference in dynamic knee valgus, but there was a difference in the, how the muscles worked, meaning so they would still go into knee valgus, but maybe they, the muscles were working in such a way where it helped prevent injuries so it, they didn't go into it too much. <laughs> would be the right. idea,
0: and I think I, I I have a vague memory of some studies. I think in running, maybe as well, where they've uh, done some work to strengthen the hip to reduce knee valgus, and in fact, it reduced injuries, but didn't change peak knee valgus.
2: Yeah, like so, Rich Willie and, and uh, John Wilson, they did a few studies where, and uh, Earl—that's another different author—where they strengthened the hip. It didn't. It didn't change. That running kinematics but they had less pain mm-hmm. i bet there's lots of those that people just have put into their file folders and never published <laughs>
0: before we move on let's take a little break hey raf here if you're out there in the world thinking gee i'm a pretty awesome pilates instructor and everyone's telling you you're awesome but then sometimes a the client asks you a question and you think fuck i feel like an idiot now because i feel like i should know the answer to that but i don't know the answer to that. So I'm just going to smile and say, why don't you do footwork instead? And um, sometimes you feel like you're faking it and you can't really understand what's going on inside people's bodies. Well, come and do a and a with me every week. We do a live one and it's called Stop Faking It and Really Know Your Stuff. And it really could should be called Stop Faking It Really Know Your Shit. But um, it's called Stop Faking It, Really Know Your Stuff. So that's where you come and ask me questions about anything related to anatomy, biomechanics. Why does my shoulder hurt in this exercise? What's this muscle for? Anything, whatever. Your client's got this weird medical condition. What is it? Yeah, you know, whatever questions you have got, come and ask me. So, so let's sort of uh, think because this knee valgus thing is something that is uh, one of the 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 most prominent dysfunctions in that seems to me yeah. at the moment. That pe- people become a bit obsessed by, and so that it kind of we move sideways into things like uh, squatting or deadlifting or you know Olympic lifting and things, and it's it's thought uh, by many people to be a bad idea to have uh, dynamic knee valgus, particularly on the descending phase. But uh, you presented a really interesting argument, um, which is kind of like an anti-interventionist argument. Which which, if I could summarise it, says something like well, the the you know, person lifting this object is under is undertaking an incredibly complex dynamic task. And if we're changing a single factor, we might be interfering with the you know with like deoptimizing their strategy in a sense. So, for instance, as they're uh, coming up out of a squat, you know if the knee goes inwards, you know we're tensioning. The glutes, yep. and tensioning the ITB, we might be storing elastic energy in there, or optimizing the length-tension relationship of the gluteus maximus and med- posterior gluteus medius to generate more force. And we, we don't really know. So yeah, talk to nope. me on your thoughts about knee valgus in squatting.
2: Uh, yeah, you, I mean, you nailed a lot of them. I'm not I'm not too worried about it. I, if I do anything when I work with patients, is uh, so if it hurts and they go to knee valgus, that's an easy one. Yeah, let's avoid it for a bit. Teach them not to do it, um, but we wouldn't vilify it. You know, it's like you can go back into doing it in, in the future. It's like if someone hurts when they run, well, maybe we cut their running for a bit, but then we don't say, "Okay, now never run more." <laughs> and what you're doing, so it's very simple. And then, and then uh, I like to listen to strength coaches. Like, uh, it, it, you might want to change knee valgus per, for performance, perhaps perhaps that actually isn't the best pattern for them and and maybe they do want to be into more more various. but performance is certainly not um, my expertise, so I'd listen to to coaches there. but i I, I really don't I, but I'm with you on I, I think pe- some especially highly skilled performers, they do it because they've figured out the best way for them to produce force. and I really don't think it's they're at an increased risk for injury. certainly for the ACL I wouldn't be worried about. I know people. There is a theory that uh, you'll load the lateral patellar facet uh, more if you go into that, and maybe you do. But I, I don't know. We have this mixed view of load in our profession, where y- y- we talk out both sides of our mouth. It's is it a good thing or a, a, a bad thing? So, so what if you get a subtle increase in load? Like that's how you progress as you subtly increase load over time, <laughs> right? That's
0: Right, so, no, so so let's talk. Let's talk through that. I love the metaphor of talking out both sides of our mouth. So, uh, loading uh, your biceps obviously is a good thing, um, and loading your pecs is a good thing. But loading your sternocleidomastoids is, a, or upper trapezius, is potentially a bad thing if you're a therapist. I mean, we have yeah. all these. We have all these. You know, good places to feel muscles working and bad places to feel muscles working. So the the places that we always want to load would be, you know, the glutes, the The abs, the, you know, all these, you know, serratus anterior is always a good muscle to work, right? But, you know, what about scalenes and sternocleidomastoids and, you know, TFL? They're the, they're the, they're the evil muscles that we don't want to, or the the vulnerable muscles that we don't want to load. And then there are body parts. So if we go to the gym and, and loaded our elbows, that's fine, but, and, and flex the elbows under full load, that's fine. But then if we flex our spine under full load, that's dangerous. So yeah, talk to me about that sort of dichotomy there.
2: No, I I think uh, it's a misapplication of the research. I think we have ideas that have come on by um, therapists and clinicians and who are also like influencers, seeing things in practice, making theories, which is fine. But then without those theories being validated, they just kind of get a accepted you know like yandis work like that you, you kind of mentioned the upper cross syndrome and the lower cross syndrome there but not specifically but this idea of the oh no your upper traps are working right like uh, so what you know or or the spine for some reason we should try to keep it in neutral you know that the disc will wear away well the disc is like i mean that's the big debate i mean the the disc adapts like any other tissue you know why why should we be worried about about loading it um sure, the adaptability to load is finite, and m- maybe we have to ha- watch how much we do it, but that's the same as a- any other tissue. So yeah, I don't understand. The TFL one is great. Like, don't, don't let your TFL turn on when you abduct your hip. Yeah. Make sure it's, which if you look at the research, it's impossible. You can hardly change it. It's a great hip abductor uh, what, why, or don't let it, you know, flex the hip. Why not? It crosses the hip joint in the front. It's great to flex it. You know? <laughs> so there's no support for the, as if it's going to like, I think the theory is it'll like pull the it band to the front, you know, and cause like poor tracking at the knee. There's, there's no reason to think that since the it band is, you know, stuck to the leg. <laughs> but,
0: right. And all right, well, let's, let's have a, uh, brief chat on the uh, whole idea of poor tracking at the knee because my understanding is that uh, prospective studies where we change knee tracking have basically shown no benefit over just general strengthening so if we do vmo activation or patella yeah. taping or whatever it doesn't really seem to do anything beyond just getting moving
2: yeah i mean that's great when you kim bendel studies she's an, an australian i'm pretty sure uh where they'll compare neuromuscular retraining for the knee versus general strengthening, she's done it both in, you know, patellofemoral pain syndrome and in knee OA, uh, and and there's no difference. I mean, ultimately, you, you stress the body, it, it adapts. I th- I think I think where you're hearing it now for the past ten years, the, the tracking theory isn't dead. You know, it's just moved from the VMO up to the hip where the, right. the theory now is like the femur is internally rotated, but the patella stays in the same place. Right. Therefore, you'll have more load on the lateral patella facet.
0: It's that Dante so, FL again.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> <laughs> the poor control. And, and that's like Chris Powers' work. Um, and I think it's his grad student or somebody who works with, I'm not sure how to say his name, but it's like Liao or they've done these biomechanical models where you know people squat and then they artificially you know with a model will rotate the leg inwards 10 degrees and they'll show that the load increases you know 30 or 20 or 40% or something but uh, i would question whether that really happens <clears throat> without the model whether it happens you know on, on the actual person so that's that theory now so it's, it's the knee the leg bone is moving under the kneecap
0: <laughs> right yeah. Um so like you know if if we if we've if we've taken away essentially you know everything we learned in uni and everything we read in 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 science papers for the first 10 years after we graduated um you know we people can feel very lost and i know this was yeah. my my experience i'm like holy crap i'm really good at doing all these interventions that don't seem to have any basically additional effect beyond just you know getting moving um, and the other the other kind of aspect that um, often comes up is is patients actually they they really want a clear diagnosis and we have in fact researched I think the camper 2017 paper that supports the idea that yeah. pa- patients want to know what's going on with me. Um, and this seems to be like a perceived barrier for, for physiotherapists or you know practitioners to use the biopsychosocial approach because they're kind of thinking is oh the patient wants to you know they want a diagnosis so that they feel drawn the, the practitioner then often feels drawn i think to provide some kind of biomechanically driven explanation so how how can we meet patient's need for a diagnosis whilst going yeah just get moving you'll be right
2: yeah we we give them a better explanation for their pain Right, that that's the thing. You, we so if it's if it's low back pain, yeah, we've known for thirty years that you can't, you know, source it to a structure. Um, so and when people say it's a non-specific low back pain, what, what's non-specific about it is the it's structurally non-specific. That doesn't mean that it's it's non-specific in terms of finding the triggers or the contributors to the pain. So when you use the biopsychosocial model. Now you can explain it better and you have more options of how to treat. It's almost, it, 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 it's almost more optimistic. So now you can definitely still talk about biomechanical stuff. So say someone has low back pain and you find that it hurts when they extend, there's one of your triggers. So it turns out, and, and you've done the full exam, you say, it hurts when you extend. You tend to extend a lot for whatever reason. Maybe they they think that you know they could be afraid to flex or something like that. They think they need to sit up straight all the time. So you, you then you might use you know pain neuroscience to say to say you know you keep doing the thing that aggravates you. This can tend to sensitize you. This is the way you know nerves work and the nervous system works. It gets better at protecting you and gets overly sensitive. And then you go back. You've listened to their whole story. You know, you've spent an hour with them, and you said, "But then you also told me, you know, your your pain is worse when you're not walking, uh, and you know when you're when you're stressed and you're not sleeping. So then you're like, okay, the way we know about pain, it's it's more than just your biomechanics. It's all these other things in your life. So now now you start saying, look at all these different contributors you have to your pain, and it, it it's always specific to the person." And then you get to say, now look, we get to work on all of these things. We don't have to change all of them. We get to work on the ones that you're willing to work on. And now, now you're like working as a team. So, what do you think you could work on? And you, as a therapist, you can always give your opinion as well. Uh, but then they might they they can start coming up with a with a plan as well. So, does that make sense? You you've given them a better explanation, and then hopefully it's an optimistic because I. The way I like to give a diagnosis is with all these other triggers is usually I, fo- I try to focus on the ones that are modifiable. I mean, I-, I may not need to do that. I don't know if everyone does that. That's just my bias. It's like, look at all these things that are contributing. But guess what? Those are all the ones that we can also work on.
0: <laughs> mm. So you've touched on a couple of things there that I'd like to unpack a bit. The first one is yeah. um, this idea that of pain as, you know, the way you're framing it there is it's more emergent sort of experience, you know, out of a complex interaction of a multiple, you know, multiple sort of factors rather than a single linear, you know, result of, or even maybe if we think about the kind of movement system impairment syndrome approach of Shirley Salmon, that it's it's a linear approach, but it's a complex, you know, A drives B, drives C, drives D, and therefore you had a pain in your shoulder, but it's still kind of a linear approach. And you're framing pain as a much more emergent sort of uh, phenomena where we can't really say, oh, this is what caused it, this one thing. We can say, okay, here are the things that we could do to help, you know, make you a healthier, better, stronger version of yourself. So can you tell me about how how, to, how you think about pain or how, how can people start to reframe, practitioners start to reframe their own thinking from this kind of linear causal approach to a more emergent approach?
2: Yeah, I I think and I I think people already know this because, um, you you know, there's so many different healthcare providers that do so many different things. (laughs) And quite often they all get good results. Right. And so it it just it just to me, it means that there's lots of different things that can help people. So that's where I come back to, like the cup analogy of pain where, you know, uh, you have pain when your cup overflows. Right? So you know whatever's in the cup are all the things that contribute to your sensitivity. right? So you can either treat pain by building a bigger cup or maybe what's what's uh, treating what's in the cup. And then I also would explain, like, and what's in the cup, the cup isn't just you know things that don't don't interact with each other. sometimes it's kind of like um vinegar and baking soda. <laughs> you know, like you you put them on their own in two separate cups. they're not going to overflow. You mix them together, the cup overflows. So sometimes it's as not as simple, but maybe someone just has to change one or two things, and you can still have all of these other triggers for their pain or stressors related to their pain, and those don't have to change either. You just change a couple things, and people are are doing well. Or you can change a bunch of things, you know, at the same time, and the the cup doesn't overflow. So that's how I tend to explain it, you know. And I, so I wouldn't do it that quickly with the patient, but you know, for, for healthcare providers would certainly with a patient that that'd be like an hour. And some of the homework would be, I'd introduce the idea of the cup and I'd hear the whole story and I try to fill the cup with their story. And then, and then I would also say, listen, but it's your story. You can tell me about your pain. Like m- maybe the homework before I see you next time is you tell me what else you think is in the cup and what you want to work on either decrease what's in the cup or how you think we can build it up
0: mm. and ba- uh, barham jam's got a fantastic little tool there called um the pain truth workbook which i use a lot with my clients which basically is a sort of walks the i think you're probably familiar with it he presented it at yeah San Diego pain Summit. yeah walks the client through sort of those questions and they get to be the ones you know providing that the information it's sort of a socratic dialogue that they have just with this workbook which is a great way for people to kind of reflect and sort of understand these factors that can contribute so you kind of uh the other second thing i want to unpack there is this idea that you, i think you expressed explicitly which is kind of movement optimism so it's okay we you've got all of these things all of these factors but we don't have to fix everything you don't have to be 100 percent perfect it's okay if you're not sleeping perfectly if you're Don't quite get enough physical activity or whatever. We might be able to just tweak one or two things to shift the balance to where you can tolerate this kind of these kind of loads. So yeah, can you talk to me about the idea of movement optimism?
2: Yeah, I mean the the movement optimism idea is that it it, it's very biomedically driven. It's a response to that. Like if your knee caves in a little, you're going to pay for it later. If you if you bend to pick over something, you're going to pay for it later. It's going after that. You're going to pay for it later. <laughs> and to me, I just like to think we have this body. It's pretty amazing. It's built to tolerate all these things that we, we get worried about. And so, like the, the movement quality, I, I absolutely get it for performance. I, I get it for um, aesthetics. You know, I, I understand for like yoga that there's a certain style that people want, you know, for gymnastics and, and technique. But when it comes to pain, I'm like, we can move in weird and, and wonderful ways, and we'll adapt to that that, that, that it's a good thing, that we don't have to worry about that. That, that the, the problems are more of doing too much too soon, you know, too much too soon when you're not ready for it, too much too soon when you're stressed out and not sleeping well. You know, the, those are the, the real risks for, for injury and pain, not because you um, you slouch when you're watching TV. <laughs> That's the optimistic idea. Right.
0: Um, so, yeah, so tell me about, um, I mean, I, I did your course and there were yeah, some, some kind of like 150 pages of slides or something. Um, and probably one of the biggest takeaways for me was one of your first slides, which basically just said, calm shit down, build shit back up. And yeah. It seems to me that that pretty much sums up your whole, approach I, I hope i'm not oversimplifying <laughs> but can yeah can you talk to me about about that I and mean, is that an accurate uh sort of yeah I,
2: it, it's how i like to think of it but then i know that it's more complicated than that and then um but but it helps right like to to, to look at a, a therapy or a technique and say well where does that fit or the patient you know it's like sometimes it's kind of like you know, maybe we have to back off with something that if you're working with a runner or something, that would be the calm down. Like you're just running too much. You're working too much. You're doing too many home renovations. All right. You you need to back off, um, still run, but just run a little less. And then we slowly build you back up. Um, but if I'm critical of myself and that, that meme, <laughs> I also know that the things that, calm people down that could be like mindfulness or breathing or meditation or yoga they also build people up at the same time you know strength training is strength training is like that you know strength training is definitely builds you up but what's so cool it's also an analgesic you know so it can calm things down so but it's just one way that i i like to bucket our 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 therapy you know just to to simplify things
0: right and i i mean the you know the that's what I took away from the your kind of presentation of that idea was it's not just about necessarily backing off you know training load, although that might be part of it. It might be just, okay, let's change the way you're moving now so that you don't go into those sensitized positions as much. or yeah. maybe we'll you know um, you know lo- you know just completely avoid that sensitized position for a bit, but we'll load the joint in different positions. You know, so maybe instead of instead of uh, doing your you know deep squats that are painful in your knee, maybe we'll do you know a, a half squat or leg press yep. or something like that to lo- load the same bits, but just not through that sensitized range. And then once the sensitization comes down and we've addressed all those other things that lifestyle factors, the home renovations, whatever, then we can you know build back into loading in those formerly sensitized positions.
2: Yeah, that's it exactly. And then I mean it's not rock and science and I, I think it's what people often do they just they just explain it uh differently. And and sometimes it's like it's going way back. It might be just, you know, uh, imagined motions. You know, it's where we can start doing some some cool stuff like that or or just training the opposite side of the body. Right. You know, all all of that neat neat science that's out there on that.
0: So um we, there were there were a few. I just want to kind of digress off a little bit into some symptom modification stuff, and we did some cool looked at some cool papers on isometrics uh, that have, which I found very interesting because they say isometrics seems to be a, a good way of uh, reducing symptoms for some people, and also it seems to work equally well when done on a different body part. So, mm-hmm. could you talk me through that research?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, provided someone doesn't have like central sensitization, and in some older adults, like when a, a, any type of contraction—not that's what's kind of neat—it D- depends on the researcher, but both uh, and a good if you want to read about it, a good researcher to read is uh, Vader. I'm probably saying his name wrong. He's out of Alborg, I think, in, in Denmark. V a e g t e r. This is called exercise-induced analgesia. So. So aerobic exercise, uh, isometric, you know, eccentric, concentric. It's just isometrics are so easy to do, and I, I like to do those. Um, have all been shown to to decrease your your sensitivity. So if you you know someone will pinch you or put a hot laser on you, you do the isometric contraction either at that joint that's painful, <laughs> or at a, a distant joint, uh, you will. Feel less pain. It, it, it's pretty cool. And and you know what I wonder? Like I, you know this this idea, but I wonder if our old techniques of like muscle energy techniques, PNF stuff, where people would feel better, if those had a huge isometric component. Uh, I wonder if if that was always the mechanism of their effect, and we just described it to uh, you know resetting spindles <laughs> or like resetting a joint into some position. Yeah, that's that work. It's so cool,
0: and and even um, yeah. So like bird dogs and planks and things for for low back pain uh, might have a similar. That's a potential mechanism. Yeah. So yeah. What what about uh, the old kind of uh, um, uh, trigger point slash self myofascial release slash you know massage of tender spots, which you know does seem to does seem to have some kind of beneficial effect. Um. But you know totally. where where you know so tell me where where that sits in the in the in the toolkit, as it were, and you know is something is is rolling on a foam roller before our workout something we should be doing for in quotes, preventative maintenance, or you know what the heck are we doing when we <laughs> when we're rolling on those tender spots?
2: Yeah, uh, I don't think the research is there. like it makes real sense to do it as as prevention. There's better warm-ups you can do with your time for range of motion and all of that and to get prepared for the sport. But, uh, but at the same time, like I'm not against, um, I almost wish when it come came to touch and massage, uh, that we went back to like a, to it being a lot simpler, like just saying it's an end in itself. You know, it feels good to get a massage. It can feel good to get your, your back cracked. Like, you know, like, just say, like, just leave it at that. And instead of trying to, to make what we do so much more complicated about, you know, fixing fashion, realigning things and changing the tensegridity in the body and all all that stuff. So I'm kind of, I'm supportive of it. Um, and, and, but I wish it was again, you know, my bias is always to, to simplify Just, just take it for what it is that it feels good. To get a massage and there's there's nothing wrong with that uh you know because we we get bogged down in like trying to find mechanisms like mm. should you dig deep into a tender spot well maybe if it felt better but you only know later mm. you know, don't, don't get caught up in thinking you're i don't even know what people are saying they're doing now with those things i don't think about that too much
0: right well i think just like patients have this need for a diagnosis i think practitioners seem to have a very, you know, as humans, we have a, yeah. a drive to kind of understand or explain things, you know, that's why 5,000 years ago, we thought the sun rode across the sky in a chariot, because we, <laughs> we have to make up a story to explain, you know, the the phenomena that we observe. And so we know that when we've got a sore, sore back and someone rubs on it, it feels better. So then we make up a story about why we think that happened. And maybe it's the story that's the problem, not the not the rubbing. Yeah, I'd be with you on that. Um, all right, so what about another sort of set of magic tricks, the the mobilizations <laughs> with movement, the Brian Mulligan stuff?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, again, like everything, I don't think they're necessary, but I think they're definitely helpful. And I, I find that that whole mobilization with – and you know this, I've talked about this, that I think that whole research crew – and a lot of the teachers are are really quite excellent because it's an example of a of a process or a therapy that uh, is evolving. And they are not. I mean, a lot of them. Maybe maybe there's a headquarter somewhere, but they don't seem tied to a thirty year old explanation of why it works. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really open to the biopsychosocial model. They think it's one thing that you can do to help someone move with less pain. They would integrate it with you know, regular ex- exercise loading—they integrate it with cognitive restructuring. They have no problem having it being a psychologically informed, you know, uh, like other 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 approaches with like w- with the treatment. So, uh, I, I think they're 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 really excellent. They know that it's symptom modif- that it's symptom modification at its heart, uh, and and they exploit that. So, I I think I have, I have respect for those uh, researchers and and that group. That's for sure. I, I'm like I, I <laughs> I've only uh, been like self-taught or had people show me their stuff. I've never taken one of their courses. I've, I read their books, uh, so and I've talked to the instructors all the time. But when people ask me to take uh, what what uh, uh, manual therapy to course uh, to to take, I always recommend theirs. You know, I know a few of their instructors. They just they just aren't great. They're really open to saying we don't know, I don't know. Uh, try this, mm. or you can make it up. <laughs>
0: Another thing I really love about those techniques is you can train people to do them on themselves for almost all of them. Yeah. All right. So you did open up one last little Pandora's box there that I'd like to at least look into, which is the whole fascia thing. So, you know, fascia. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, the fascia, now it's the interstitium seems to be the current. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so talk to me about, Um, what's your take on, you know, should we care about fascia?
2: (laughs) Okay. Fascia is like spine stability. You, you definitely need it, but it's not something you ever really need to worry about. (laughs) That's what I think. It's like breathing. You definitely need to breathe, but don't worry. When you go to sleep at night, you're going to keep breathing. (laughs) Okay. It's, it's, um, it's an anatomical physiological entity that's needed to support the body and to do wonderful things. Uh, but I doubt we need to focus on manipulating it. Uh, uh w- with any specific treatments, you know, e- even sleep, who's like, I call him the godfather of fascia. When you read his, his, um, his books of it's like, he's the one that started the fascia research Congress, mm-hmm. his his interventions to train fascia are never about stretching it or breaking up scar tissue or like changing its alignment it's all just really basic movement therapies of, of strengthening and, and stretching but i think with his stretching he doesn't actually think it gets longer because when you apply tensile load to it it will stiffen up a little bit like like any connective tissue will so he he's a good person to, to read, who's certainly a, a a leader there. So that that's my take on fascia is you know, recognize it's important, but don't worry about it.
0: All right. And <laughs> so what about this kind of um the sort of biomechanical approach to fascia that sort of says, you know, well Thomas Myers can dissect out the, you know, splenius, rhomboids, serratus anterior, external obliques all in one big long things so we're transmitting force or we're transmitting force from our lats down through our lumbar dorsal fascia into the opposite glute into the t you know it band etc so or if we've got a problem in the hip we should strengthen the opposite lat or if we've got a problem in our neck we should strengthen our opposite external oblique so what's your take on that
2: yeah i think they go too far with with that stuff like no doubt you i mean i've read a i wrote a blog on it and cited the the anatomist um it was like, let's go, I can't remember what the blog was, maybe like fascia science stretching the truth about manual therapy. I can't even remember now, but he, those, those, those linkages are there, but he argued they're, they're artifacts of a dissection. Meaning you can create those linkages depending on how you dissect because, you know, yeah, the, the fascia from the left lat will cross over, but you'll also have fascia that just from the thoracodorsal um fascia that will go straight down on the ipsilateral side you know like they yeah it's all connected but it doesn't mean that it's it's strongly connected like if you if you squeeze your glute like you know you can contract your glutes if you contract your left glute
0: i, I think i, I don't ha- i think i've got gluteal amnesia i'm not
2: sure that. <laughs> okay, that's a whole other episode uh <laughs> like it's not like gonna stop it's not gonna suddenly move your shoulder Mm -hmm. right that the the force transmission isn't that great i mean those same studies will show like uh if you tug on the the thoracodorsal fascia even at its most contiguous there you're only going to get like four i think it's either four centimeters or four inches of of force transmission down the line so it's it's not it's connected but it's not really that connected it's not something to worry about like you honestly like if you If you have your arms over your, I always, I think we did this at the San Diego Pain Summit, maybe not this one, but if you put your arms over your head, which I'm doing right now, even though I know it's just a podcast, uh, (laughs) if you put them over your head and you bring your knees up to your chest, there will be imperceptible movement at your shoulder. Mm -hmm. Right, if the fascia was really connected to to the shoulder, like your shoulders would want to tug downwards because you'd be pulling it so Mm -hmm. much. Like it, it just, we, people can figure these things out for themselves.
0: So, you know, so, all right. So we've basically taken. But Tom
2: on, wrote me a letter. I think oh, it was on he? his website. He wrote like, dear Greg, it was about that blog. <laughs> it was three years after. And I think he's even moving away from fashion now. Wow. I think he feels it jumped the shark too.
0: Huh.
2: Yeah. That's, that, I just saw, it. I just remembered that. Yeah. I mean, he's tied up with it. He thinks it's still important, but. I think he's even said, "Let's let's look at some other things too." I think it was more like, "Hey, no one's talking about fascia, maybe we should." And so, like, he was right, but then, you know, he he got wrapped up in his own fascia.
0: <laughs> and and really, it comes back to those kind of questions that you asked right at the beginning: which does it need to change in order to improve <coughs> outcomes, and does it change treatment? And the answer to those, both those questions seems to be no. Yeah, no. Um, and can you change it? And can you change it, right. So, all right, so we've essentially taken away almost all of the kind of special knowledge and skills that uh, us kind of degree qualified allied health professionals have worked over years and years and years to, you know, <laughs> become really skillful at isolating transversus abdominis or multifidus or correcting a pelvic upslip or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so, so what do we do now instead?
2: Yeah, I mean, we, we can still do mechanical therapies. Right? I I think we have to, like, look at uh, what are the common themes, the common denominators across those mechanical therapies, and keep those in, of course. Um, But then, but then I think we can, uh, the whole my whole point of simplifying the mechanical therapies is that is for us to give us, you know, kind of give us permission to develop skills in other areas. Which would be like you know behavior change and uh, communication, you know, I'll, I'll, there's like there's so much that I, it could be it, it's like it, not infinitesimal and or not sorry not not infinite <laughs> the opposite <laughs> not infinite, <laughs> but but where you get to you get to work on so many other different skills you know to, to, to help people because there's so many like that's the you know there's so many different roads to Rome here, um, but but so simplifying the mechanical stuff. And, you know, our patients don't care. You know, it's all new to them. You know, I, I wonder if sometimes if we just have too many smart therapists who make things harder just because they want to keep challenging themselves, you know, intellectually. But your patient doesn't care that your simple intervention, that your intervention is, is simple to you. It's not necessarily simple to them.
0: Right. And and simple interventions can have very complex effects, like you said, sort of alluded to totally. before, with these kind of interactive nature of sometimes of the 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 factors that are contributing. So yeah, so what's I mean so someone comes in, they've got a sore, you know, sore back. You alluded to listening to them for an hour, hearing their story, uncovering those those uh additional factors beyond the mechanical thing like sleep how, how the home renovations are going you know whatever you know training load whatever it might be uh you know how do you start to put that together in a clinical reasoning process i'm not sure if that's the right term but how do you you know how do you fill your shopping basket with with things to do with this client
2: yeah i mean it's again for me it's always rule out red flags rule out sinister stuff rule out things where you know they might have a condition that really does need a specific intervention you know it could be a rheumatoid arthritis where maybe i play a a secondary role or uh you know where or if i don't really know what's going on i'm definitely going to need other help there so i definitely want to make sure that i'm the right person to to treat them uh and then like using your shopping basket it's like okay what's, what are all the factors contributing to their sensitivity? Um, and then, and then it goes into, you know, what are they willing to, to, to work on? Right. And, and, and that's it. And, and then I'll often give a suggestion at the start of like, here's, so this is everything that's going on that's contributing to your pain. Um, in my opinion, you know, if it's a, for for my advice, these are the things that I think that, that we can work on, And here's some strategies that we can start today, you know, and, and then I'd also ask, you know, and hearing all of this, and I know a lot of this stuff is new. I'd be like, like, what do you think that we could work on? You know, what, what do you think might, might be helpful? So it's always that, that interplay.
0: So how does, how do we, you know, how do we get to a place because this, uh, I don't think it was that camper paper, but a, a another paper around the same vintage found that physiotherapists I think are, you know, very much are aware of the biopsychosocial model, but feel inadequately prepared. Like they feel they don't feel they have the skills to to apply it. But really, I mean, the way you yeah. kind of present it, it's like it couldn't be simpler. It's you it's like <laughs> it's actually stripping out a lot of the complexity. Rather yeah. than adding stuff in, so how do we how do we help people come to understand this? Is actually it's really really easy.
2: Yeah, I mean, like we're not going to treat depression with a psychotherapy approach, but we're going to acknowledge um, that depression can be a factor in contributing to their sensitivity, uh, and then we do have approaches that can help depression, which would be. Um, you know, resuming meaningful activities, and they could work with a psychologist too. Uh, starting exercise again, you know, addressing their fears about exercise, addressing their fears about physical activity, and and people will say, well, catastrophizing, rumination, you know, fear avoidance, those are psychological constructs, uh, and I always say, like, well, if they're catastrophizing, rumination, fear is related to you know, this false belief that they're going to damage their body and that they don't have an understanding of their pain, then we as physios or any healthcare provider in this movement-based field, we're, we're the experts in the body. Like we are def- definitely the people that can help educate and hopefully allay their fears, not just through education, but, you know, as Peter O'Sullivan would say, I think they're using the term like uh, these behavioral experiments, which are just movements you know, get, getting people to slowly start moving again. And they, they suddenly say, wow, it, it feels good to garden for 10 minutes. Mm. I always use gardening as an example, even though I don't garden, but uh, <laughs> it's like, you know, it feels good to run for five minutes, even though I thought I could never run again. Mm. I mean, is that a psychological intervention or is that a physical intervention? It's, it's a physical intervention that influences the psychology
0: Right. And, you know, the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy is that thoughts, emotions, and behaviors are, you know, cir- it's a circular kind of um, mutual yeah. influence.
2: Yeah. And I just I think our approach is we don't address the thought head on. We address the behaviors and the activity, which in turn, you know, influence the thoughts. And maybe a psychologist does it the opposite way. I, I don't know. I don't know how they work.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, so that leaves us with, you know, really a, a very much our toolkits now sort of been emptied right out, and there are only a few little simple buttons on the dashboard, as it were, that we can can press on. It seems to me. So you know, where does that leave? Where where's our value as a profession? If essentially all we're doing is sort of helping people take stock of their lives and and do things that everyone really you know basically knows they should be doing anyway, like get better sleep and look after themselves and eat well and get moving in on a daily basis and stuff like that. You know, like so. Yeah, where, do, where does where does that leave our sense of value as professionals?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I we still have those skills in the initial diagnosis and the triage and ruling out. Like we we still have to be good clinicians. Like there is there's still a need for for good education here, right? Like where we we can't be hurting people. So there's so much, and then I think there's still a huge area where there are specific things. Um, that need help, you know, like specific you know intervention, again, rheumatology and rheumatological disorders. So we still there's still so much that we have to learn and keep up to date on. So even though the mechanical interventions again are simple, it it doesn't mean that our 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 job is. you know, so I mean we 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 should probably still be the primary point of entry for people with, you know aches and pains. But you need to be a very good clinician to still do that safely, mm. right? To, to give a simple mechanical intervention.
0: Mm. And so what should we be doing when, you know, so if my client comes to see me and they've got, you know, maybe low back pain and we work through this biopsychosocial approach and we come, you know, come to the conclusion that one of the things they need to do is just some general strengthening and they want to come do that with me because they feel like that'll, they'll feel safer or they'll feel yep. more motivated or whatever – you know essentially if i have the kind of mindset that well really we just need to load you progressively and we need to you know gradually approach these sensitised positions you know uh but really your your technique per se is not that important you know what what am i what am i doing during the session like what value am i adding
2: uh you, you know what though like you you might like my daughters a good example of this. Like, people people still need queuing because Uh, the technique still can matter because my opinion is if they keep doing the same way of moving that aggravates them, sometimes we do want to intervene and teach them a different way to move. So we, we still have feedback. Um, and we can, there's still a role for motivating here and designing a good program. So we still want to see them while they're, while they're doing it. And, and then, um, the other approach to looking at how people move with exercises is, uh, We can identify habits, like uh, we can say, while there's no one right way to do a squat, I'm still of the opinion, it's good to train a number of different ways, right? So you're always teaching new exercise variations. I, I don't think we're put out of work here.
0: <laughs> okay, great.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> like my daughter, I'm the wor- I think I told you about this, I'm the worst coach for her. She, she's a cheerleader, a gymnast, and she tries to get into this pose where her leg goes up behind her head. And she's stretching with her foot up on the wall, like it's like a standing split, but her mm-hmm. legs behind her. And she's like, "Oh, I just feel like I'm blocked." And I look at her, and and she's been doing it for weeks. And all of her flexibility comes from her spine. Yeah, I think you remember this one from the videos. Mm-hmm. I'm like, "Yeah, you are blocked because you're just you just spine is your your spine is pro, your your facets are just abutting. You don't have any more range. But you're so flexible there, but she has no hip flexibility." So, a better therapist than me, <laughs> they'll intervene. <laughs> I can't do it. I suck so much with her. I'm like, sweetie, you have to stretch your hip flexors. And she's like, what do you mean? And then I go to, I, and I just, I, she, I, need, I need to hire somebody. But like, so I still, <laughs> there's still a role there in intervening mm-hmm. to show different ways to move and to change their habits. And you see people, they have back pain when they go to squat. And they keep doing the same thing that aggravates them and they don't even realize they're holding their breath mm-hmm. or they don't even realize they're tensing or they don't even realize that they've flexed their back or overextended. So there's still tons of stuff for us to do.
0: Right. So the, the to sort of break down the, the splits scenario… You, you know, we need enough biomechanical understanding there to, to be able to look at the spine and go, okay, you're at the end of your physiological range, your spinous processes and your facet joints are locked up. So we need to increase your range here. We can't do it in the spine. We have to do it in the hip. So we need to put you in a situation where your spine can't meaningfully contribute to the exercise. So you have to do it with your hip.
2: Yeah. Sounds great in theory, but goddamn it. Try to do it in practice Mm -hmm. with her. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was brutal.
0: Right. And and so maybe and when you say it's hard, is that because of the psychology where she's actually really good at bending her spine. So it's really hard for her to sort of let go of that or is there some other aspect?
2: Well, one, it's I some her dad, mm-hmm. she doesn't listen to me. Uh, uh, but yeah, you're 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 right. She's really good. That's that's her habit. And she really has trouble feeling her hips move separate from her back. Mm. Like even like a simple hip flexor stretch. So so yeah like that so there's like so a whole course on you know not a whole course but a few hours of of coaching and learning about cueing and different ways to stretch the hips so there's still like lots of training that would be involved in something as simple as that
0: mm-hmm. so you so, could do like a, a thomas test sort of position uh assisted stretch or you could do like a deep lunge with a you but, know the back foot oh, up the walls. totally
2: uh, like you can mess around with lasers there's the motion guidance system we've done a bit of that where you you put a laser on her ASIS to try to get her to rotate her hip down, mm-hmm. which will, if mm-hmm. the lead hip rotates forward, that'll make the hip go into extension mm-hmm. as it's on the ground. Um, yeah, lots of different things. So that's what I'm saying, like, still lots of training that that we could do and get better at it. Mm-hmm.
0: Greg Lehman, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I thank you very awesome. much.
2: Yeah, thank you. My pleasure.